Welcome at Breaking Ground. I'm Ann Snyder, and for those of you who have been following our essays, symposium podcast these past few months, I want to thank you on behalf of my team and the nearly 20 magazines, seminaries, think tanks, universities, and institutional networks that have invested in this year-long conversation. We hope you have profited from a lens that is seeking wisdom and hope in a year that daily intimidates both. It is my privilege to introduce tonight's event between pandemic and protest, exploring the future of the liberal arts and higher education and our four guests. But first, let me give you just a little context for a conversation that may seem a bit tone deaf to the mood of the moment. When you hear the term liberal arts these days, it's tempting to roll your eyes at the luxury it can seem to pursue a form of education that is this broad, this humane, this morally concerned, this integrated, and frankly, this inefficient. There is nothing immediately useful about the liberal arts. I remember when I graduated from Wheaton College, a, a small liberal arts school west of Chicago, and my dad pulled me aside for loving if hard to swallow advice. And he said, best to keep your head down and your ears up for these first few years in the workforce. You graduate from a school like Wheaton, very high on concepts and that's great. But to be blunt, you're pretty low in the hard skills department and your cognitive and verbal ease with the analytical just won't be marketable until a decade or two into professional life. A baby boomer, he may have been speaking slightly more from his own generational experience but I took his advice to heart and probably escaped some suffering for doing so. I did have some articulate thoughts around questions of why and what for, an orientation toward telos and even transcendence that so much of the world around me seemed like it was grasping to recover. But I found myself in entry-level jobs with very little confidence around the concrete questions of how and what and in those early professional years, I watched those from other educational backgrounds just accelerate right out of the gate with envious ease. Certainly, in the face of this year's economic upheaval, public health and leadership crisis, overdue racial reckoning, and a highly contentious test for American democracy looming in just 29 days, why are we at breaking ground taking a moment to reevaluate what a particularly human form of education could be? Why does it matter in the face of our present unraveling? You're going to hear an answer much more eloquent than my own in a minute, but from where I sit now outside the academy, reflecting on what the liberal arts gave me and much more importantly, thousands I've encountered in every sector imaginable, I would say this, the liberal arts are not for everyone and they are a privilege in our ever more unequal society. But privilege is not automatically something to be canceled. It can deploy its gifts in service of the vulnerable and the voiceless, and it can steward a healthy middle of institutions that give our society structure and grace. When I think of the liberal arts at their best, that integrated study of history, literature, mathematics, the sciences, philosophy, the arts, theology, and language, I think of an educational pathway that is more needed now than ever. In an era of dogma and either or thinking, the liberal arts forge question askers who can hold the tensions inside a greater truth. In an age of impatience, quick judgments, punishing frameworks and increasingly contagious cynicism, the liberal arts foster curiosity, patience, and the beginnings of virtues needed to wrestle with opposing ideas in good faith, with perseverance and an open mind. In a society struggling to maintain dominion over technology's mastery, the liberal arts offer a way of thinking and perceiving that no machine will ever be able to match. Most of all, the liberal arts expose you to the breadth of moral sentiments that just make it a really delicious thing to be human and a fearsomely responsible thing too. Tonight, our four guests are going to interrogate what the liberal arts could yet be in a season when so much is threatened. They come to Breaking Ground stage having just fashioned an exciting and important stage of their own called the Liberating Arts 
which you can find at www.theliberatingarts.org. This project aims to deepen tonight's conversation with nuance and breadth over the coming year, and it has been made possible by a grant from the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities, one of Breaking Ground's own partners. Moderating our roundtable tonight is Davy Henriksen, the director of the Institute for Leadership and Service at Valparaiso University, where he also teaches in the core program in the Honors College. He earned his PhD in religion, ethics, and politics at Princeton University, and has written for a variety of peer-reviewed and popular journals, not least of which is the ever-grateful Comet Magazine. His interlocutors include Jessica Houghton Wilson, Francis Sue, and Jeffrey Bilbro. Jessica is the Louise Cowan Scholar in Residence, where she teaches humanities and classical education. Last year in 2019, she received the Hyatt Prize in Humanities, and in addition to publishing in literature and theology, she is invested in the future of the liberal arts at the K through 12 level, having co-founded a classical K through seventh grade school. Francis Sue is a celebrated professor of mathematics at Harvey Mudd College and former president of the Mathematical Association of America. He earned his PhD from Harvard University and in 2018 received the Halmas Ford Award for mathematical writing. His new book just out, Mathematics for Human Flourishing, is an exposition of the virtues built by a mathematical education and simultaneously a meditation on what it means to be human. Finally, Jeffrey Bilbro is an associate professor of English and the editor-in-chief of Front Porch Republic. His research interests focus on theology and environmental ethics in American literature, and he's written several books, including Loving God's Wildness, The Christian Roots of Ecological Ethics in American Literature, Wendell Berry in Higher Education, Cultivating Virtues of Place, co-written with Jack Baker, and Virtues of Renewal, Wendell Berry's Sustainable Forms. These four are treasures, representing dozens, if not hundreds, of equally luminous treasures in the professorial landscape of liberal arts education writ large. I'm honored to welcome these lights to the Breaking Ground stage. Davey, over to you. Well, thanks so much, Anne, for a really generous introduction. Um, and I want to jump right into things, right, at the deep end. Um, so the ongoing crisis in higher education has many pressure points, financial cultural, political, and so on. And all these were only exacerbated by the global pandemic uh, of the past several months. And, and several of us actually right here on this panel have had our livelihoods negatively impacted by these series of crises. So in the midst of all of this, as Anne alluded to, what is it about liberal arts and the education that we've, we've all enjoyed ourselves that you think is worth holding on to? And if the liberal arts are to have a future, what might this kind of education offer to our various political and religious communities? And Jessica, I wondered if you could get us started. Yes, I'm delighted to be able to start talking. After getting that kind of introduction, I felt a little bit like I was on The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, where it's my head and everyone's watching your head. I mean, I'm great, I get to talk now. Um, I think this is a really good question that probably needs to start with a definition. So when we hear liberal arts, most people hear humanities and they only think of that one part of the liberal arts, but that really is just involving the trivium, right? We think humanities, we think of the grammars and the logic and the rhetoric, um, but we're also including the quadrivium in this conversation. And that's why I'm so glad that Francis is gonna talk to this too. Um, really the mathematics is the sciences, really it's it's um, arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music, right? Measuring in time, measuring in space, measuring um, in all those different ways that we find patterns in the world. All of those go together to really free us. They need to be the seven liberal arts to have a place and then we build upon them. So when I talk about the liberal arts, I'm thinking about those practices that help us to be free to create. They're practices of the soul. In the world that we live in, we are natural imitators, and that's great. There's skills that we can learn by imitating. What the liberal arts do is they take that skill of imitation and they teach us how to craft in such a way that we then become creators of things as well. Um, they give us the liberty to be ourselves and know ourselves and know our roles in the communities that we're in. Not to speak too apocalyptically, 
but I read a lot of dystopic fiction. And so when you read dystopic novels, the first thing that powers do in order to control people and make them not free is to get rid of their ability to create, right? So those worlds are always ugly. They're dark. Uh, the people are missing their history. They don't know how to discover in the sciences. They don't know how to have hypotheses. They don't know how to look at the world around them and find patterns to find meaning. In some sense, um, they've lost the ability to really know who they are. Their culture has been completely lost and destroyed. The liberal arts protect us from losing that culture and losing that ability to be free citizens. And in this way, this is why Anne was talking about how the liberal arts are about responsible citizens and not just a form of education. It's a much larger question, it's a much larger issue. Being a professor, of course, it is my realm to really think about what it looks like as I'm practicing education, as I'm teaching my students, so that I'm not participating in creating a dystopic world, right? Um, that there will always be that remnant that's left that knows how to be free, that does not go quietly into that good night, so to speak, and instead uh, continues to protect and cultivate and create. If you don't mind, because I am a literature professor, I would love actually give a poem that is satirical. It's a poem that is an imitation of W.H. Auden's The Unknown Citizen. And what I was trying to do in this poem is really to register the concerns that we're having about what the liberal arts, how they're being um, truncated, how they're being turned into just checked boxes on our degrees, and they're not being really seen as those free practices of cultivation that they should be. So I'll read this. I think it's pretty clear the satire, um, but I am hoping to write satire in a sense that Walker Percy would say, so that these things don't come to be, right? This is a version of the world that I hope we're not, we're not gonna fully embrace, that we're actually gonna see the problems with and maybe walk away from towards something brighter. So I'll read this and then I'll pass it to, to one of the other panelists. It's called The American Graduate. She was proven by the college board to be one who had achieved the highest measure of success. And all her grades in every subject agree that in the modern sense of an old fashioned word, she was blessed. If in doubt of her merits, just read her CV. Except for the quarantine until graduation, she worked hard with her comrades to achieve maturation and met the demands of every syllabus, doling out homework and passing tests always dotting the I's and crossing the T's. Her transcripts of credits shows her true skills, though half of her courses were made by appeal. As president of student government, she shined, a born manager with a Machiavellian mind. In her classes, she kept her feet on the ground by avoiding conversations that became too profound. Having checked the boxes of Western Civ and Poli Sci, she'll opine on fake news, sham stats and other lies. Her professors from online who saw her one time declare in their letters where they fill her name in its spot that she's the most qualified choice from the lot and she, and they list the hows and whys with such care. Our administrators communicate to their board of trustees that this kind of student the university strives for, one who returns for homecoming and gives generously, donning school colors and never asking for more. She may change jobs every year and even career, but be assured she was trained to make money and buy things, her future secure. Whether she's free or happy, they are not concerned. With a diploma in hand, who cares what she learned? So that poem will come out in modern age if you actually wanna see it. Um, but I think it, through, po through poetry, so I'm actually practicing liberal arts here, um, explores some of the things that I think we, we need to see differently in education when it comes to liberal arts. Maybe I'll chime in here just to add uh, to what Jessica said. I, you know, I think um, we may think of the pandemic as sort of upending higher ed, but um, uh, maybe it's worth thinking of this as a real opportunity to sell the liberal arts. Uh, you know, if you think a little bit about what the liberal arts offers, I, I think in many ways the the pandemic has uh, the pandemic's effects have have been exacerbated by a lack of an ability to think in nuanced ways about the, uh, the events of the world around us. And a liberal arts education would, if, if it's done properly, have, have better equipped us to 
recognize misinformation and manipulation, uh, accept complex truths when we, you know, it, 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 rather than think in simple, just, you know, black and white, um, enable us to converse constructively with people who hold different opinions uh, than us. And so in many ways, the, the liberal arts, I think, is, is really these kinds of, um, uh, this kind of formation is really what we need right now to navigate what we're going through. And Francis, it seems like that that might be a counterintuitive claim in some senses, because one of the criticisms that's often made of the liberal arts tradition is that it's a sort of ivory tower idealism. Um, so that it, when we're in the middle of a political chaos, it can seem almost quixotic to talk about some of the things that we're talking about tonight, especially when so many of our most fundamental democratic norms are fraying at the seams. Um, so I, I want to kind of press you on this point a little bit and invite the other panelists to weigh in as well. Uh, how might uh, a renewed attention to higher education and the liberal arts specifically produce good citizens in troubled times? And are there specific virtues that that tradition might help to inculcate um, to help people resist injustice and incivility and recognize falsehood when they see it? Yeah. Well, I'll just say, uh, maybe from my perspective as a, a mathematician, you know, one of the things that, that misimpressions mis, um, that people have of mathematics is that it's just a bunch of facts to memorize or, or algorithms to follow. Whereas math is really about thinking and reasoning uh, and being able to solve problems you've never seen before. Uh, and you know, this is these are these are these kinds of virtues that are being built in us when we study mathematics go beyond the specific skills that we're learning that you're learning in, in whatever math class you take. And and uh, the, the you know the math that you are uh, learning uh, now, you may never use, right? I mean, this is part of the question that people often ask: is why am I learning this stuff? When you know, 20 years from now, the, the math that powers the next great innovations are prob was probably just invented 10 years before that. Well, what, what you're learning to do is to think and to reason, and and uh, you know, a good education is is really there to help people learn to handle complexity, to realize that that the most um, that most truths are, are multi-layered and complex, right? And so, you know, if if uh, education is done right, it should help people to think ethically, to think morally about every subject, including mathematics. Uh, you know, I often like to think of math as the power to see hidden patterns in the world, right? Who People who are able to recognize trends, who, who uh, are able to, to know the danger that exponential growth poses uh, in a pandemic. And, and just like any subject, math itself can be warped and derailed and misused. Uh, you can think uh, about the social media algorithms that are powering what kind of news you see. Uh, and uh, you only need to look at that to, to realize that, you know, we need to be teaching our students not just uh, uh, knowledge and facts, but how to hold, hold these, um, these powerful tools uh, and, and uh, use them for, for good ends rather than for um, for, uh, uh, for bad ends. And so, you know, good liberal arts education should help people think about how, how their discoveries, how the creations that they're, they're making will be used so that they can recognize the dangers. And maybe if I could chime in and just, uh, you know, if Jessica talked about liberal arts um, freeing people to create, and Francis is talking about, um, you know, habits of thought that help you think about the ends toward which your, your work ends. One way I like to, to frame liberal arts when I talk to my students is by making this distinction between private goods and public goods. And we oftentimes think about college today as a very private good, right? It's, it's designed to give you, the individual, a credential that will help you get a job. Um, but the liberal arts is a different kind of educational vision that names uh, one that has public ends, right? Uh, we want to cultivate the kind of virtues and virtuosities, the, the character and the skills, right? You have to, be, you have to know stuff, but then you have to have the virtues to, to use the, the stuff well. Um, and I think, you know, traditionally the liberal arts was contrasted with uh, a servile education. And so if, if you're just going to be a slave or, uh, you know, a wage slave, perhaps, you only need to know uh, a particular discrete set of skills. 
Uh, and I think, unfortunately, to, modern universities are kind of in danger of reverting back to that model. But, um, but, but liberal arts, I think, names a public uh, education for the, the public or the common good. And uh, we, we, we shape students to uh, act responsibly and to use their freedom to serve the goods of their communities. So um, it is hopefully, you know, there are personal goods that come out of that, but it's really oriented toward the public or the common good. So as, yeah, as both Francis and Jessica have said, at a time when we see our public fraying, I think the, the need for the liberal arts uh, is more apparent than ever. Can I just say one thing, cause that was so good. Um, when we are looking at voting, you know, in the future, November, and it's like on everyone's minds and people are talking about the government as though it's going to control everything and wherever you vote, like that's where the power is going to be. What you're bringing up is that's not where all the power has to be held. It really has to be where you are in your community. And if we don't cultivate that ability to see the public good and to realize that we have gifts to give right where we are. We're, we're going to keep playing this false game that all the power is in one place far, far away from us. Um, so I, I love what you're saying, that was great. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's, uh, you know, it's resonant with the idea that we, we each of us, as Jessica said, have creative power ourselves, right? And so this is, uh, this is uh, I think, may help us get away from this, uh, this idea that, that power is out there and this is just a, a, an epic battle between uh, who's going to control all the goodies. I mean, it seems like the shift to talking about education and liberal arts as a public good is really important because if we're talking about it as a private good, a lot of the, the usual criticisms keep coming back, which is that the liberal arts are essentially elitist. Uh, and, and some of the, the criticisms, of, criticisms would go, who can afford you know, this kind of private education? Isn't it only for people from a certain demographic or class or even racial background? Um, so I guess what I want to ask you, if, if we do want to make the liberal arts into a public good, it seems like we also have to make them a democratic good rather than an elitist one. And are there certain things that we could be doing in our respective institutions and communities that can make it more democratic and less elitist? Yeah, you know, I think what Jeff said uh, speaks to um, this this idea speaks against this idea of the liberal arts education being elitist, right? Because you know the uh, the the standard education where you you uh, learn stuff to do a particular job, uh, and uh, this is where you sort of get your your meaning and your self worth uh, is I think I think that's the elitist um, notion, right? And that's that's exactly what's being exacerbated right now uh, uh, in uh, not just with this pandemic, but in the you know, information revolution, uh, people who were trained for certain skills, now those skills are actually going away because they're, they're we're losing them to automation and, uh, and uh, um, artificial intelligence, right? So uh, what, do, what kinds of, what, what do people really need out of education? It's not particular skills, it's the ability to think, uh, to reason, uh, to be able to respond to challenges they've never seen before people who are able to recognize what's true and what's good in the world, that that should be part of what a, uh, an education offers. Uh, and to be able to marshal those things in a redemptive way, to critique the world for what it is while trying to envision what it could be. This is, this is something that I think uh, if education is done right, it could help people to do. And, and that's, that's profoundly uh, non-elitist, right? It's saying that uh, this kind of freedom is available to everybody. Uh, and it's not uh, just for the reserved few. And so part of your question, I think, is how do we actually uh, make that practicable, right? How do we actually realize that? And uh, of course, you know, some of this is going to depend if, if we really want everyone to have this kind of education, uh, then it's going to require public investment in this public good. And I'm, I'm not sure that there's necessarily political will for us to do something like that here, but uh, yet today. Uh, but having an educated populace is beneficial for everyone, whether you have an education or not. Yeah, if I can jump in on that. So Francis, you were talking about envisioning. If we don't have the ability to imagine, so part of it has to be liberal arts train our reason, but it also trains our imagination. If we don't have the ability to imagine a different world than the one we're in, we're not going to be able to cultivate a different world than the one we're in. 
So all of these problems that we're currently facing are really a dearth of imagination and an inability to, ha to have hope because we don't have any imagination for a different kind of future. Uh, so I, I really would hit hard this idea that uh, democracy has to do with what Chesterton would say, democracy of the dead. Let's not leave out all the people that, you know, happen to have died as though they don't matter. And instead, the more that we can learn from the past will help us cultivate this imagination to be able to prepare better for the future and to see a better future. And in that sense, democracy is not just about um, the people who are currently here in this moment in this contemporary problem, but seeing ourselves as what am I going to do for my children based on what people did for me in the past and including all of those voices as, as we're envisioning a better future. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I think, you know, there's, uh, I mean, Francis raised these tough sort of institutional and funding questions. And um, those are some questions that are on my mind these days, right? What kind of institutions do we need to sustain this vision? But I think um, maybe the first place to start is by making the public case that a liberal arts education is not elitist and that actually what we need to do is form people who have, as, as Jessica's pointing out, this robust vision of the good that they want to, to serve. I think um, I, I like, I'm, I'm drawn to the Lord of the Rings and this, this vision of, you know, Sam and Frodo uh, sacrificing a lot, right? Um, sacrificing a lot of comfort. And why? Because they, they care about the Shire. They love the Shire and they are willing to do almost anything to preserve the kind of flourishing life that they were part of there, even if they ultimately wouldn't be able to share it again. So I think, you know, I, I try to talk to my students about justice, right? Uh, kind of a big concept uh, in, in the great literature, but also this notion of shalom. And does, does your work really tend shalom? And this, uh, Francis talks about flourishing in his book. I think that's naming the same kind of reality. So if we can help our, our students to say, not just, you know, can I design this computer program, but will this computer program tend toward justice and shalom in my community? Or... Uh, you know, we need, we need lawyers who are good lawyers, but also then think, how can I conduct this prosecution that really tends toward justice and shalom in my community? So I think it's these sort of bigger telos questions um, that, that hopefully a good liberal arts education pushes students toward asking, as well as, you know, then they got to conduct the trial or write the program in a competent, good manner. But, but it's much more than that. Yeah, so Jeff, that makes me think of, of, of the idea of, of vocation. So I teach at an institution, a Lutheran institution historically, that emphasizes this old Protestant doctrine of calling or vocation. And I wonder if we could probe that a little bit. Because each one of us, I think, whether it's as an undergrad or as a graduate student, received some kind of liberal arts training. And then each of us grew up and took a job that kept us in school indefinitely, hopefully. <laughs> right? There's a lot of assumptions there about growing up. <laughs> So what would you say, though, to uh, the student who isn't planning to follow in our footsteps and become a teacher at an institution of higher learning, the student who wants to become an engineer or a carpenter or a business owner, or just you name the, the vocation or the career? How do the liberal arts help these students to think about their vocation? Yeah, that's an important question that I think academics need to be pushed on, right? Uh, one of the things I, I talk about with my students sometimes, and I get this from David Brooks, actually, is this distinction between resume virtues and eulogy virtues. And, um, you know, I, I hope my students don't just have really beautiful, impressive CVs or resumes, but really that they think, uh, you know, how am I bolstering my eulogy virtues? How, how are people going to remember me? And certainly that entails the way that, that has implications for how you do your job if you're an engineer or a carpenter, but it also has a lot of implications for how you treat your family and your neighbors uh, and, and how you're involved in your church or your community. So I guess I wanna say that, that I think we have to recognize that career and, and vocation are gonna overlap, but, for, but they're not gonna be um, perfectly aligned, that our vocation extends much beyond our career. Um, so I want students to approach their career uh, with, with the mindset toward how can I do this calling to serve the higher good, but also to think, um, you know, what, what else am I called to besides things that earn a paycheck that are just as, if not more important, and, and to invest their creative talents and their gifts uh, in 
the sort of civil society, whether, you know, beginning in their home, but pushing outward as well. Yeah, one of my privileges when I was teaching at John Brown University was that I taught in the honors program where they had the year long sequence of integrated humanities. So we read everything from like Timaeus to Nietzsche. It was a whole year of philosophy and literature, but none of the students who took that were literature, philosophy, history majors. The students who took that were all engineering students, business students, nursing students who were receiving their honors credits for philosophy, art and literature, which was part of their degree program at that time. And none of my students vocationally were going into these disciplines, but all of them left these courses saying, this was the most foundational course I took during my time in college. And the reason why is because I think it, it woke up something in them that showed them their life is bigger than their labor. And I think that's so essential to understanding any vocation you're in is that, yes, you have your work, but ultimately you're not a worker. You're not a worker bee. Uh, when you think of Walden says something like um, the world has convinced us we're all ants or something like that when really we, we should be so much more and we should be awake to those possibilities in life that show us that we're worth so much more. Um, my husband's an engineer, but rather than come home at night and uh, not read, he gets to read. He gets to read stories of the Odyssey to my children and he gets to have a larger life than just his job. And I think that that's that's essential to having what we're talking about with free citizens and a common good um, and a, a culture and a society that we actually want to be a part of. So just going to follow up with you for a minute. Uh, when academics talk about the liberal arts, uh, as we have been doing tonight, uh, we usually assume that we're talking about higher education. How though should some of the ideas and practices of the liberal arts that we've been talking about tonight uh, be transforming other spaces? And, and specifically with, with your own kind of interests and, and recent career chair, I'm wondering if you could speak to the way that K through 12 schools and curricula uh, could be formed by this tradition as well. Um, I actually hate being called an academic. I don't know what's wrong with me, but I hear that <laughs> phrase and it just, it just doesn't sit right. I think in a large part because it does the same kind of worker limiting. Like I, I never really specialized as much as I just became a generalist. I became as much as possible um, a learner in so many different fields. And that, that would be my vision for people is to become more and more generalist in things uh, rather than the narrow in their vision, right? To be able to inhabit a much bigger world. And so I think that process begins with educating and education at the higher education level. Um, is really kind of just like the icing on the cake. Like there's been so much established already in these students and so many paradigms about what it means to be a learner have been set. Not that there's not room for movement. I grew a lot in college, I grew a lot in graduate school. So there's definitely a lot of room for transformation. Um, but a lot of the ways we see things, right, have been set early on. And so I've poured much of my energy into the K through 12 models and um, really trying to cultivate what does liberal arts education look like for kindergartners, for first graders, right? Um, practices such as listening, like teaching little kids to listen. Um, my, my son and I go on listening walks where we, we try to practice that art of listening and attention, really kind of forming these habits in students that show them what learning could be so that those habits can be built upon later as they, they gain other kinds of knowledge, as they gain other kinds of practices in their life, that they have these foundational practices um, in the liberal arts, really arts, I mean, practicing art, <laughs> right, that, that helps uh, cultivate liberty in these students. So I poured myself into classical education, which really is built on trivium and quadrivium. That's the foundation for it. It's gymnastics and piety are the early years, and then it's grammars and the grammars of every subject, um, including languages, really capturing ancient languages, which does not sound useful in this day and age, but is so important to our ability to um, speak to others, to understand the meanings of the things that we say, to um, care for words and not let words manipulate us, is to really understand and know words. And so I start, we start uh, students doing Latin when they're in third grade, just to really get into languages and to understand languages better. Um, and then of course the quadrivium uh, as well. And so these students have not just an ability to memorize formulas, that's not part of their education where they only memorize process, they really learn how to think in the quadrivium. Um, so they're, they're practicing 
you know, geometry, arithmetic, um, astronomy, they really practice these things. And like Francis said earlier, they're able to see these problems, be able to take problems apart and be able to find solutions and practice um, these complex ideas, right? They're being trained in that when they're really young. And, and it's a different way of learning, I think, um, that helps prepare them for liberal arts in college. Thanks. So I think we have time for maybe one more uh, question before we transition out of the formal session to, to Q&A. Um, so Jeff, I want to turn to you for this final question. Uh, you recently wrote um, a really beautiful, uh, really evocative, very personal essay on how the pandemic and the, the crisis in higher education led to the elimination of your current position. Um, and in that essay, you quote a, a really lovely line from Wendell Berry, um, which I, I wanted to share just briefly. So Berry writes, it may be that when we no longer know what to do, we have come to our real work. And that when we no longer know which way to go, we have come to our real journey. The mind that is not baffled is not employed. The impeded stream is the one that sings. That's, that ends Barry. Uh, I was wondering if you could share something about uh, what a posture of hope might look like when we're baffled and when the future of something that I think each one of us loves so very much, uh, liberal arts education, when that thing seems so imperiled. Yeah, um, well, I guess I, I could quote Barry again. Uh, and in one of his essays, he says that human hope may always have resided in our ability in time of need to return to our cultural landmarks and reorient ourselves. And so I've been really heartened, you know, a lot of the, and, and Jessica talked about a lot of the poems I've memorized or stories that I've studied sort of come to mind in new, in new ways when you're baffled or stuck. Um, because I, I don't think that what we need right now is some tagline from a TED Talk guru. You know, we don't need some sort of fancy new marketing slogan. We need to return to these perennial sources of wisdom uh, and figure out how to how to sort of reapply them or or rethink their what they have uh, to offer for today's tasks. So I'll just give you one example of a of a landmark that's that I've been pondering, and it's from Frederick Douglass. You know, he he had some pretty tough circumstances, right? Uh, and he, uh, after he taught himself how to read in a really remarkable manner, he uh, he's still enslaved, and he starts teaching Sunday schools, right? Illicit. Uh, Sunday schools uh, where, the, where he teaches his fellow enslaved persons how to read. And I think, man, if, if Douglas can do it in those conditions, I have nothing to complain about, right? So I think seeing how other people um, pursue these educational goods in really adverse circumstances heartens me to, um, to do good work now and uh, you know, hope for, for future opportunities to do that, but, but recognize that these challenges are not new or unique to us. Um, that, that we still have a lot of a lot of privileges and a lot of opportunities. I think we're going to transition now to uh, Q and A. Hi, Anne. Hi, Davy, and I will tag team with you here. Thank you all to everyone watching. Um, we're going to address some questions from you, so please uh, feel free to write your questions in the Q and A. And I'll just start off, Davy and I are gonna sort of go back and forth, um, but this struck me as very salient for the moment. Uh, this is from a Dan Barnett. He asks, how does liberal education deal with the paradox that those trained by liberal education may have diametrically opposed political, social, even moral ends? Which one of you wants to take that? Can I, well, I wanna jump in. Um, I'm an external processor, so my answer may not be as good as Jeff and Francis once they internally process and then say something brilliant. But my first thought was Solzhenitsyn when I heard that, because um, Solzhenitsyn is constantly talking about how um, the problem with the communist government was that it only allowed one voice, right? And I think Gary Saul Morrison says something along the lines of, um, the communist regime had the greatest freedom of speech of any country ever. The only rule was you couldn't lie. And the communists controlled the truth. So anything you said against the communist party was deemed a lie and therefore couldn't be spoken. Right? So it's that, it's that way of controlling the narrative so that everybody only thinks one way. One of the reasons I love liberal education is because it allows for so many more voices. I mean, I think you've witnessed that even tonight, hopefully, is that Francis and Jeff and I 
um, don't have the same thoughts on these issues. And I've learned from just hearing them talk. And I think a thriving society is one in which we have multiple voices that are able to dialogue and able to engage one another. And we don't have a monolithic narrative that is controlling and silencing anybody who disagrees. Um, to me, that's, that is a very important question. And it's probably, I hope, the biggest takeaway from tonight. Yeah, I guess I would agree uh, with that. That uh, in a uh, in a uh, well-functioning liberal arts uh, education, there would be uh, diverse viewpoints represented and uh, people able to dialogue. And you know, part of what happens in, in any discussion class is uh, helping people learn how to dialogue constructively with each other and to really listen to one another. All right, well, we have a second question uh, from Matthew Sandwich. He says, uh, with the cost of tuition skyrocketing and student debt soaring, are the liberal arts best pursued at the university? Or is it best to explore alternative ways to cultivate and teach the liberal arts? And if so, how might these alternative ways be pursued? Yeah, I, I guess I would just say, I hope it's not an either or. Um, yeah, I really hope that, yeah, people who uh, maybe didn't have the opportunity to go to a, a traditional liberal arts school, um, that's, that's not stopping you, especially with the internet and uh, libraries. Um, you can get a lot of amazing resources and uh, even, you know, connect yourself to people who, kn who know more and can, and can lead you in dialogue. So there's a lot of opportunities outside the university, and I think that's all to the good. Uh, I hope those continue to thrive, and I think they will. I think um you know as people as, as events like the pandemic sort of push people to reevaluate their fundamental human purpose uh, and they may might grow dissatisfied uh hopefully people people want to know more and, and think about how to use that knowledge um to cultivate the good in their communities and, and public but I, I think so i i think uh, I, I do see a lot of hope in sort of new institutions that are cheaper and more flexible but I also hope we don't lose um, kind of the, the traditional liberal arts college because it's a really unique uh, tradition in America in particular. You know, a lot, of, a lot of countries don't have the network of very diverse, very local, very small, very idiosyncratic schools. And I think that is an, an incredible legacy that uh, depends upon uh, you know, some, some people in the past, right after the founding, who thought, and before actually, but too, who, who thought, hey, democracy is going to depend upon people, a citizenry educated in these sort of civic virtues, and we should uh, make that happen. So I, I think it's a remarkable legacy that we've inherited, and uh, it's sad to see that threatened, but I hope that people recognize that value and um, reinvest, make them better, make them uh, more affordable, but don't lose them. And I want to tie into a question that I've just scanned in, in the Q&A that's, that's related, which is, is how, how does this uh, dovetail with the, the MOOC model, the massive online courses? And I guess I would say that it's really hard in, in, in uh, the liberal arts education is not something that can be replicated easily on a large scale. Uh, and so, yes, uh, a MOOC is a, a, a good place to perhaps learn things and learn facts, uh, but to really wrestle with some deep questions and, and, uh, and to learn, uh, I think, how to think uh, is something that I think is, is best done in an apprentice model. Um, and so that automatically leaves, I, I think, low faculty-student ratios and, and things like that. So, I don't see, I think MOOCs have a place, but I don't think they would replace, uh, for instance, uh, the liberal arts um, uh, model. And just one add on that. I think one of the liberal arts goals would be to train us away from just becoming consumers and to show us what it means to be in relationship with other people. And liberal arts colleges then provide an atmosphere in which you're having a relationship with a teacher and with other students who don't think the same way as you. And so you're being trained away from the consumer model and towards a different kind of practice of being human. I'm gonna step in here and I get to ask a beautiful question that's come in. Um, this 
person asks, I'm struck by what on its face might be attention. Does a liberal arts education have primarily instrumental value, AKA citizenship, foundational skills, moral responsibility, justice, shalom, or is its primary value its intrinsic value? Learning is simply one of the goods in human life that we seek for itself. I'll jump in. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm sure other people may have different views on this, but I would say that most definitely it's, it's strongly an intrinsic value. Uh, and, uh, and yet I, I would say it's not, it's not easy to separate that from uh, some of the instrumental um, values that uh, an education has. I mean, I think an education really does make life worth living. That's why it's an intrinsic value. It's, it's something that when that when you have an education, you're able to see the world a little more uh, in, in a little more uh, in color, so to speak, rather than in black and white. You see more things, you you appreciate more things, uh, and yet because of that, I think it does turn us into a better citizens who are able to love our neighbors well and and seek moral responsibility and uh, and justice and things like that. So, uh, I, they're they're sort of inseparable for me, but for me, primarily uh, intrinsic. Even the phrase instrumental there, what you're actually using these things for, you're not really using in the same way like a, a, a tool would be used, right? It's a different kind of formation. So when we talk about education, the way Socrates defined it as to teach us to love what is beautiful, right? So those practices that teach us to love are actually transforming us into being better lovers, right? What Francis was saying, being able to see things better, then we love it better. Um, so you're just becoming a different kind of person. No, so you're not studying these things to become a different kind of person. You just are by the very study of these things. Um, so the more that you love mathematics, you're actually going to help other people flourish because of that love that's being created and cultivated in you that's hard not to turn into love around you. So, um, so again, I don't think you can really separate them. And I just would add that Francis's book, I think, does this really well on the mathematical um, dimension because you know, there's these moments of just beauty and, and delight and awe and isn't this cool? You know, it's like, it's like a little kid in, in the best way, right? This sort of childlike wonder. And then it just seamless, but, but it's very clear too how seamlessly that translates into um, serving human flourishing. So I think, yeah, it is an important distinction to think about, but I think ultimately when we're talking about the kind of human person that a liberal arts education uh, is intended to form, they do become inseparable at some point because it's, it's trying to change you into a person who loves rightly. And that's gonna have all kinds of uh, benefits that follow therefrom. There and I did not pay Jeff to say that. <laughs> <laughs> There's still time. <laughs> all right, we have another question from Dan Oberholtz. Uh, he asks, if the liberal arts education cannot be effective at scale, what possibilities are there for truly democratizing them beyond the academy and traditional institutions? I would just say, uh, to, to use a math term, uh, fractal-like. Um, you know, they're not, they're maybe not effective at sort of mass scale, but they are very easily replicable. Uh, and, and they don't take a lot of expensive equipment, right? They take people uh, in a room with a book or some paper and a pencil, right? It takes some conversation, but it doesn't take a lot of infrastructure. And so I think, um, you know, what we need to think about is not some sort of centralized, we need these three universities to um, scale up their MOOC system, right? And then it becomes this mass structure, but, um, you know, models that, that can be adapted to particular circumstances. And I think, you know, the, the K through 12, um, things that Jessica is talking about is a really remarkable example just in the last 10 or 15 years how that has boomed and it's not some centralized structure there are some overarching networks and people are sharing uh, knowledge and ideas but it's very grassroots um, and that was the tradition with uh, again with the U.S. Uh, undergrad liberal arts colleges right that they're very um, they all have their own local histories for, for the most part so I think we can we can think about scale not in terms of overarching top down, but in terms of you know fractal bubbling up from from the grassroots. Yeah, and 
if I can speak outside of institutions, I think institutions are important. I don't think professors should just go off and you know, teach their own courses online to make money off the knowledge that they've received. I think it's important to pour into our institutions, again, to protect from what I said earlier, that we think that there's the government power and then I'm the consumer. And as long as the government treats me like a consumer and I'm happy, everything's fine. Like institutions are where we have this participation um, in our local community. So I do think institutions are really important. But at the same time, there's a lot of other institutions besides the academy that you could pour your energies into and could actually revitalize the liberal arts. So there's libraries, there's book clubs, um, lots of people can start clubs. I mean, we all gathered here tonight to start the liberatingarts.org, um, Breaking Ground started grassroots. I mean, we're really trying to find ways that we can invest in these conversations and invest and create small institutions that that really have a place and a role and i think everyone could be doing that um it's just going to demand a little a little bit of self-sacrifice right like stop streaming netflix all the time <laughs> like instead read the odyssey or something so this question comes in from doug sycama who is a wonderful writer and the consummate liberal arts brain if you ever have encountered his writing so he asks there is often this assumption in the liberal arts that, quote, great texts or beautiful art will make us or our students better. There's a type of Arnoldian humanism that has been tried before and found wanting. How do you avoid that? Or better, what is the role that each of you see theology has to play in contemporary liberal arts education? How does that perhaps guide and direct all that we slash our students encounter? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I guess the first thought that comes to mind for me is, you know, the contemporary, uh, the very current and present um, uh, protest movement, I think comes out of a desire for justice. Uh, and, uh, you know, part of the, the question that, that one asks whenever you get into disagreements about what, you know, what, what, whether people should be protesting about this or that, uh, is really a question of what you, um, where does, where is that justice rooted? Like, why is it that certain people are worth speaking up for or fighting for? And, uh, and that, I think, you know, is much, it, it, it finds its place most centrally uh, from a, a worldview, a theological view that, that says that uh, each person has dignity and worth uh, in, and is made in the image of God. And so that's one way that I see theology is very very present, uh, and you know a, a thirst for uh, a, a, a a desire for justice is really in some ways a thirst for righteousness, uh, and uh, it, whenever you know as it's placed you know in its proper context, and people can see that uh, each person has dignity, and that has to come from somewhere. And I know that Doug is part of the classical school movement too. And Ravi Jain and Kevin Clark wrote the great book, The Liberal Arts Tradition. So it just kind of summarizes everything they've learned over 10 years about liberal arts. And what's notable about that book is that piety is the foundation. So you think like pious Aeneas, um, piety is the beginning. So we have to approach these texts and these conversations already from a practice of piety. And then the liberal arts help cultivate that and train that. And eventually theology is the crowning art, right? That you move towards. Um, so theology is at the top and piety is at the foundation or at the roots of everything. Yeah, I, and I would agree with that. And I would maybe just say, uh, yeah, Doug's a friend. So we've had these similar conversations before, but I think, you know, it, it, there's a way of, of framing these questions um, where you commit to the theological end but do so hospitably because uh, I think a lot of people who aren't necessarily gonna, going to agree with this particular theological worldview will, as Francis was pointing out, see the dignity in human persons and think this is, this is unjust, we should do something. Or they enjoy um, learning and they don't think that, that their job defines who they are as a person. So I think there's a lot of common ground you can build, particularly at this moment, there's a lot of dissatisfaction out there with a uh, sort of technocratic inhumane uh, economy and culture. And, and that then provides an opportunity for uh, yeah, common ground and collaboration um, 
at the same time, sure, uh, yeah, Arnold made some mistakes, uh, and I and I wouldn't want to sort of put a roof a roof over the liberal arts. Um, so I do think it's important to maintain the, the, the theological ends, but to do so, I guess, in a way that's hospitable. I love that you just said Arnold made some mistakes. Great. <laughs> that was just like an entire like shorthand. on 19th century poetry or something like that. I don't want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> and do we have time for maybe one more question? Yeah, go for it. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, one more question here. It says, how would board members at your institutions, perhaps concerned with short and long-term financial health, alongside principal concerns about curriculum, pedagogy, and the aims of higher education, how would they respond to the vision you're offering tonight? That's, a, that's an interesting question, and I'll, I'll speak briefly because uh, obviously my institution uh, chose to move uh, away from me and a bunch of other uh, faculty who um, teach in our sort of core liberal arts subjects. So I think they're, they're making a, a certain decision. And, uh, and on the other hand, a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to, to speak with some colleagues at a, at a board meeting. And a lot of them, I think, uh, you know, these are all people in, in various, uh, they're CEOs of various businesses or um, have led nonprofits or whatever. And they all see, you know, I cannot tell you, all of them come up to me and say, I need my, my employees to be good writers, clear communicators. I need them to think creatively. Um, so on the one hand, they seem to, to sort of see uh, the instrumental goods that a liberal arts education can uh, achieve in, in potential employees. Um, and yet they don't always, I would say, uh, they don't always know how to per, sort of communicate that to um, Perspective students to parents uh, to to other board members and to administrators. So I think it's a lot of it is a communication problem and um, finding ways to explain how the liberal arts can be um, are, are are so important and and a lot gets lost in those discussions. I guess. Yeah, I would hope that we could make board members uh, ambassadors and allies, uh, but the the first place uh, to start is uh, helping them communicate. The, the language they would use is the value proposition. What's the value proposition here? And I think uh, what uh, Jeff and Jessica pointed out is, it, it, uh, and Anne uh, as well, and Davey, uh, is uh, that this, you know, the, that we're trying to train, the, the, the exact things that employers are looking for often uh, are the things that a liberal arts education can provide uh, in a way that uh, a, um, a, a, uh, another kind of education wouldn't. If I can just say one last thing, um, Jeff, you were so gracious. I loved that answer too. Um, I am now at a university that fully supports this vision. So go University of Dallas. Um, I will say with our country as wealthy as it is, the people that are most often protesting the liberal arts are the people that actually have the money to pay for it. And they're wanting to go into training to make more money. It's the people that don't really have the big paychecks that are actually trying to come to liberal arts institutions because they want wisdom, they want knowledge, they love these things. Um, I've found that to be more and more true. Um, and I, I think the state of our country right now, who would not want to go into debt to make this a better country, um, to make this a better world and a more hospitable place for people to, to thrive and flourish? I'm going to ask one more question just to exalt us above the practical at the end here before closing. And that just is, as you all enter this, I think, really important and, you know, wonderful exploration over the next year plus um, the liberating arts, um, where are you locating your hope? vis-a-vis uh, -vis sort of the future of the liberal arts. And this could be in a reimagining sensor, but if each of you could just locate um, where you're finding the most hope as you look ahead, how would you characterize that? Francis, well, I'll start with you. And Davey too, I'd love for you to answer this. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll take a stab at that. I, uh, I'm not exactly sure if I'm understanding the, the question correctly, but I'll answer what I think I'm being asked, which is, I guess I, I see a lot of hope in uh, the, the younger generation, the students that I'm teaching, and they, 
Um, they're the ones who I think are asking right now at this moment really uh, hard and interesting questions about their future, the future of, of the, our country, this world, um, uh, the pandemic. Uh, and you know, the kind of education that my students are getting right now is, I think, uh, forming them in ways that maybe uh, past generations of, of, of students haven't been formed because they're thinking through some of these complex questions that we're trying to teach them, uh, give them the skills to think about. I would just piggyback on that because I think Jessica already mentioned, um, you know, students and Francis did, did too. And I, I would agree that it's really hope giving when you walk into a room of students and, and you start talking with them and you realize that, yes, they have all these anxieties about their future job. Like that's a real thing. And yet they don't want to be defined by that, right? They really have a passion for uh, a broader sense of purpose and, uh, and they want the, the wisdom and the virtues that will enable them to use their knowledge um, for good. And so that gives me a lot of hope, right? That's, that's, I guess, why I get up in the morning and come to work because I get to hang out with these, these students who are really passionate. And, um, and I think they, they, they have a real clear, you know, in general, a real clear sense of what, what they want to come to school for. And it's not just a paycheck. I could also answer students, so instead I'm going to just add a, a different angle. Um, I, I teach literature, so where do I get my hope? I read poetry. Poetry gives me a greater vision of things um, than just the headlines and the news. When people are getting discouraged, it's because they're reading the Twitter feed too often and they're reading the headlines too often and they're not reading the wisdom of the ages and the beautiful poetry that's available that will remind them that there is a bright future, that there is a lot to be hoped for. Yeah, I guess I, I think of the beginning of even this, this fall semester when students came back to Valparaiso where I teach and I, the, the, the anxiety was palpable like in the first few weeks in the classroom and students were quiet and you could tell that they were, they were suppressing a lot. There was a lot going on. Everybody's sitting in, in confined spaces with mass social distance. Just the conditions for free, free expression were not there. And yet uh, over the course of like the first eight weeks of the semester, I started to see them opening up and we started talking about some really fundamental issues. We got into great discussions about moral relativism and, and about ultimate meaning and value and, and cosmopolitanism. And I started to see them open up, um, certainly intellectually, but I think also in some senses, morally and spiritually as well, because the pursuit of these, of truth, beauty, and goodness, I think does have a liberating effect on people. Uh, and I think that it's especially in a time when we're, we're, we seem hemmed in by public health crisis and all sorts of social ills, that the pursuit of, of the freeing arts, the liberating arts is actually more necessary than ever because they speak to the soul and not just the body that may be literally confined in small spaces right now. So I've just seen this just play out over the first couple of months uh, with my students and it, entering into the fall semester, I was anxious and I had a low grade depression about the future about all this and yet seeing them engage with texts and ideas and pursue truth I mean, it was, it, it changed the world for me. Thank you all. Thank you, Davey, Jessica, Jeff, and Francis um, so much. And thank you viewers. Uh, you know, I think at a time when we desperately need more original thinkers and more vision casters and not less, and certainly more bridge builders and horizontal thinkers, not less, and more spiritual and moral food, not less. I do think it is the liberal arts that you four have um, defended and begun to reimagine that holds a key, not the only key, but a critical key to sort of minding the various gaps and fragments we're all living within. And tonight I am really grateful for a chance to rethink with you, maybe break ground a little bit um, toward a future that is sustainable, worthy of its heritage, uh, and more widely representative and accessible. And to all of you readers and watchers of Breaking Ground, I really encourage you to follow the progress of tonight's conversation at www.thelivingarts.org, which 
should be another tagline in its own right, <laughs> perhaps a new coin for this, um, this realm. Uh, this shouldn't just be of interest to those inside the academy, but to all of us who care about the quality of our leaders and the social fabric that makes life whole. The stakes are high, increasingly so, but with invested, considered, and creative guides like these, I think we might be able to meet them. Thank you for joining us tonight, and good night. <laughs>